Hi, thank you for joining me for another episode of Beyond the Pink Cloud. This is your host, Dr. Alice Kirby. With me today, I have Dr. Lauren Fogel-Mercy. She is a, a licensed psychologist, a certified sex therapist, and a sex and relationship therapist. I know she works in Minnesota and as part of an integrative medical practice. Hi, Dr. Lauren. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks so much for being here. Uh, I know I've had a lot of questions for you, like in the build up to this episode, because as we were just yeah. saying before we started the recording, I think everybody wants to talk about sex and relationships. It's hard to have a cutoff point. There's so much to talk about. Yeah. Um, and so before we kind of dive into any questions, I'd love for you just to talk a little bit about the, the way that you practice and the work that you do. Um, yeah. And tell us about your clinic. Sure. So um, I have been practicing at um, a large uh, managed care uh, organization for the past three years. And the clinic that I'm in is relatively small. It's a subset of that. And I work with um, two other psychologists and uh, several medical uh, specialists, whether that are uh, medical doctors, some are physicians, assistant, nurse practitioners. And we um, help to treat uh, various sexual health concerns, both from the psychologic and the uh, medical standpoint. So I've been doing that for a few years and loving it. And it's really nice to have more of that holistic approach. I would love to one day be even more holistic than we are, um, but all in due time. So uh, that's a little bit about where I'm currently working and um, I tend to apply a couple of different um, methods and techniques into the work that I do. And so when I see couples, I'm using a lot of Gottman method. And when I am doing uh, sex therapy, I am doing mostly um, behavioral sex therapy, sensate focus therapy, and applying mindfulness and polyvagal theory to the work that I'm doing. So, and the polyvagal theory is relatively new to me. And I think for a lot of people in the therapy world, it's sort of coming onto our radar and making the rounds on social media. So, um, and certainly we can talk about that, but it's really interesting, the crossover between that and um, addictions, mental health and sexual functioning. Yeah, it's fascinating. That's an area I'm particularly interested in. I had um, Justin Sensari on like my yes. fourth episode, I think, yes. from the Polyvagal podcast. Um, cause I'm studying somatic experiencing and the work of Dr. Peter Levine. So I'm in, yeah. I just completed year one of that three year training. So I'm all about like somatic experiencing and the polyvagal yeah. theory and, you know, all the bottom up therapies. It just um, makes so much sense it and it so really explains sense. so many things. So that's interesting that you use that. Um, do you use that like in your work with couples as well? Like, do you, will you kind of have them tap into like do some psychoeducation about the polyvagal theory and, and kind of utilize the bottom-up um, therapies a little bit? I'm starting to, um, as I'm learning more about it, when um, I've been training in the Gottman method for a while, and for folks who don't know Gottman, um, it's G-O-T-T-M-A-N, and that's based on doctors John and Julie Gottman's work. They're um, pretty well-known uh, couples, researchers, and therapists here in the U.S., and um, so I've been training in their method to hopefully be certified at some point. Hmm. Um, they have used, you know, vagal tone in some of their language and some of their work. And basically, you know, John Gottman calls it um, emotional flooding. 
Hmm. And when couples get flooded, when they get activated, whether that's their fight or flight or they're getting frozen, and he has sort of his own language for some of that, it's criti- criticism coming out, contemptuous behavior coming out, stonewalling is the like freeze response, hmm. um, that they sort of have some ideas for how to integrate that into couples work. And so I've been doing some of that for a while now. It's only more recently as I've been uh, learning more about polyvagal theory about how to, you know, kind of name that in the room with couples, point that out and help them learn both how to practice self-soothing for their um, sort of own regulation, but also to practice some co-regulation. And What can I do to help you feel safe and secure? when you're feeling um, outside the window. That's really lovely. Um, and I think it's so important too. I, I just I listened to, there was um, some kind of a trauma collective on the other night that somebody in an SE group had sent me. And so I listened to Peter Levine talk, but one of the, the last things he had said was talking about like when someone's in distress, we can either mirror their distress or we can um, have them mirror like our centeredness and our calmness and our groundedness. And I thought a lot about like how that is with co-regulation mm-hmm. and, you know, like how am I in, in, in interacting the world like with my patients, but also in my relationships of can I be this person that is to be mirrored rather than just to like go, you know, to mirror the distress so I can see that yeah. being really like a powerful tool for couples to both kind of come in with that understanding of, oh, wait, I, I can also hold this like space, I guess, for us. And when I can't, I need to know when that point is mm-hmm. and take a break, which is pretty much one of the only things that you can do that's not going to cause injury to the relationship. Because if yeah. you try to stick it out and you're in fight or flight, or even freeze, you're not responsive, you're not attuned, and it's causing more and more um, like rift and uh, that lack of attunement ends up being more stuff that you have to repair later. Yeah. Um, Which then just builds on itself, I think. Right. I was looking a little bit about the Gottman method because I've been I have, I'm not familiar with it. Um, and so I noticed they had like the sound relationship house theory. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so I was reading a little bit about that. Is that something that you'd like to like talk about or explain a little sure. bit? Sure. I mean, I think for folks who are interested in learning more about couples research, um, the sound relationship house is their theory that's based on their research and um, kind of builds from the bottom up. Um, and so um, and I'm not going to remember all the levels, so apologies. No, it's fine. For you could give us just like the brief, the I'll brief give you version the of it. That, that basically the foundation of a strong relationship is going to be rooted in a strong friendship. So couples who talk to each other about what's going on, who can practice co-regulation, who can be a source of safety and be like a soft spot for their partner to land it's really important that couples do at least some things that are fun just for themselves. So whether it's like once a week, once a month, but some sort of ritual where they have time to connect just as two people, not as, you know, people who live in the same home and run a household or parent or whatever it is, but just to kind of be themselves together. Hmm. Um, So that's the first foundation of it. And then it starts to build into the fondness and admiration system, which is about building a culture of appreciation and being kind and respectful to one another and 
doing small things on a regular basis that are really loving and kind. Um, and then building from there, we start getting into some things around like trying to keep an emotional bank account in the relationship mm -hmm. that is in a surplus. Um, what would that look to... like? Like, I mean, I think I know what you mean. I have my own ideas yeah. of what that means, but what do you think yeah. it would look like to be, or like, what are some things we can do in relationship to build like our relationship, emotional bank account? Yes. Yeah. So it's, it's called building up the positive perspective. And so if you were to take like the temperature of a relationship at any given time, you want that to be in a positive state, not a negative state. Because once we're in a negative state, it's really hard to build mm -hmm. back from that. Um, and what they found from the research, the Gottmans found that it's really just small things on a regular basis that build that account. And they even have data and mathematics to go with all of this. So there's a ratio that's commonly attached to the Gottmans. It's the five to one ratio. And the five to one means there should be five positive to one negative. And a lot of people misinterpret that to mean like just in life in general five positive interactions to every one negative. That's actually their conflict ratio. So during times of conflict, couples who are staying together and rating their relationship as satisfying and are happy hmm. are having five positive interactions while they're having conflict, which is really confusing to a lot of people. What does that look like? And I always use my own relationship with my husband as an example, because I think it, 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 well, it made it relatable for me, which is when we're getting into a heated moment, he will often reach out his hand and touch my hand. And that is his gesture to say, this is a really tough moment, but I am here and we're going to figure this out. And just that, you know, it's like a little olive branch and it's like, mm -hmm. okay, all right. I know that we'll do this. So we're trying to go for more of that, not just one-to-one -one or two-to-one. Five-to-one, that's during conflict. Day-to-day, -day, that ratio is 20-to-one, wow. which sounds overwhelming to a lot of people. How on earth do we get to this ratio? You get to it in a lot of the small ways that you might already be attending to your relationship. So when you, know, you make coffee for your partner in the morning. So it makes it, you know, easier for them to get up. Or you send a text that says, I hope you have a really nice day. Or you check in on the way to the store and say, do you need anything? What about that other thing that you were wanting? Can I get that for you? You know, all of these small gestures when you, you know, cuddle up next to them and go in for like a hug, those are all positive things. And it's those things that count and build up that account over time. That makes sense. So we just want to keep kind of doing those things. So when you're being thoughtful and respectful and loving, you're doing what you need to do to keep that account in balance so that when you have hard times, you've got enough of a foundation to work with. So it doesn't feel like it's the tipping point. Right. Or it's like, we're arguing, I'm out of here. Right. Exactly. Or you've got that built up enough. Yeah. Um, then the Gottmans get into some stuff um, more about conflict, how to manage conflict. Their research is that 69% of the things that you argue about are just a loop that go on and on. You keep fighting about the same things because the things that you fight about ongoing are usually related to perpetual issues. Hmm. And perpetual issues are rooted in more stable differences between two people. 
So an introvert and an extrovert might have continued conversations over time about how much time they socialize or spend in versus out. And the idea is that that doesn't change because those things are more stable. They're based on who we are as people. And so the goal is not to resolve all the problems. The goal is to resolve what's resolvable, but to learn how to manage what's not resolvable. And it means just, you know, kind of knowing how to talk about it without hurting each other and creating more damage along the way. It's being able to say, oh, there's our different thing again. You have your perspective, I have mine. Hmm. And even sometimes coming up with some short-term compromises to see if that's something that is livable. I think that's kind of freeing in a sense too, to understand like we don't need to solve everything like this. I love this statistic. A lot of people, when I introduce the 69% of problems are not resolvable are like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? Terrible. Terrible. It sounds really horrible. And then, you know, when you think about it and I'll often, I'll make sure that I, you know, let people know this part. I find it really comforting Mm-hmm. Because it means I didn't pick the wrong person. We're not, you know, failing at all of this. And that 69% would be if I was with this person or that person or the other person, it would just be a different set of problems. So basically, whoever you're with, choose whatever problems you're willing to live with long term. Some things you can live with, and some things are deal breakers. Right. So yeah, I find it comforting because I'm like, okay, well, we just have to manage it. We don't have to fix it or solve it. It takes a lot of the pressure off. Yes, it does. Because I feel like that constant state of like, we need to be working on our relationship and like fixing everything. I feel like that gets so exhausting um, Mm -hmm. that it's Mm -hmm. not really, even though I think like the idea is good, like, okay, we want to work on things. You know, I find that even with just sort of individual self-growth, when there's this heavy fixation on like, we have all this work to do, it gets, it feels really heavy after a while. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I like that part of this work is to enjoy each other as people and um, yeah. You, and to you're going to have differences. Yeah. You're different people. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Two different people with different personalities and values and ethics and beliefs, and they're not always going to line up which is normal and fine and healthy. And sometimes those things are not going to change. Yeah. Yeah. And that's probably. okay. Yeah. As what long do as you... it's not stuff that you can't live with. Yeah. That's kind of what I was going to ask. And maybe if you can even draw from your own personal experience too with yeah. your husband of like, where do you sort of draw the line? This question came up um, like in a couple of different ways of of like, okay, I want to continue to sort of deal with this with this person versus like, this is a deal breaker or I need to get out. Um, like, and I know it's so individualized, but are there any sort of guideposts or markers that, that you use, you know, to guide people of like, okay, this sounds like maybe you're, you're, this is not going to change so much to the point that the relationship is, is never going to reach like more of a, a solid, stable point. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you're right. It is. And that's often the case. It's a very individual boundary that you need to draw for yourself. However, I think, you know, if you know that, because I think a lot of people will approach it as this is something we can resolve. This mm-hmm. is, and they're, they keep going at the same problem, hoping for a different outcome. If you know that most likely what you're dealing with is a perpetual problem because you've been having the same conflict for 20 years, The question then becomes less about make it go away, solve it, change it. And it becomes more about 
can I live with this? Mm. Is this okay with me? And if this continues in perpetuity for the rest of this relationship, is that something that I can be okay with? Yeah, so it sort of shifts, it shifts the, the dynamic and the narrative because it actually shifts from my partner needs to change mm -hmm. to I need to adjust what I expect around this issue. Yeah. And what do you, I'm going to ask like the same question, I think in a different way, because <laughs> sure. I feel like a lot of what I'm hearing from um, some of the women in the sober communities where I'm active um, is people talk about sort of narcissistic partners or mm -hmm. like maybe, and especially, you know, when, when addiction and alcoholism comes into play and then people get sober. And so the relationship dynamic is, has changed quite a bit. Um, but then I hear sort of this kind of continuation of, well, how much do I put up with this person stuff, like how much, when I'm doing like work on myself and all my self growth stuff and everything, but like my partner doesn't seem to really be that interested in it, or we're not really growing as a couple, like when, you know, how much of that do I stick around for? Right. And when is like my point to walk away? Like, and I, I don't want to say like it becomes right. abusive because I don't know that that's always the case, but it seems like it gets to a sort of an unhealthy kind of a place yeah. or a less healthy than it could be sort of place. Yeah, I think so. The, the first part is, you know, can I live with this, depending on whatever that is. The other part is, is your partner open to change? Is your partner doing at least some of the work? And we hear this a lot in therapy and on social media, the work. What does that mm -hmm. mean? Are you open to looking at yourself? Are you open to feedback? Are you willing to take some steps to grow or heal or change parts of you that may not be working so well. And I think that becomes also, you know, part of that equation, because if you are in a relationship and you say, look, we've got this issue and it keeps coming up and that's normal, but we need to be able to talk about it or I'd like to find a different way to handle it. And if you have a partner who's saying, I'm good, like, we're just mm -hmm. going to keep doing what we're doing. This works for me. And I don't really care that that doesn't work for you. That is when we start to think, mm, I don't know if I can live with this. Right. When you have someone who's like, I hear you. There is a problem here. Let's figure out ways to maybe not resolve it, but maybe talk to each other more kindly or figure out how to manage when the emotions get really challenging and it's hard to come back from, you know, being dysregulated and, you know, whatever that is that, you know, some sort of open-mindedness and openness to learning something new. I just read something recently that I saw, I think it was on Instagram that said something to the effect of, you know, a partner who is not open to change, that's a sign that that's going to be a really difficult relationship. Yeah, I think that's true. And it's not that we go in with like, I need to change everything about this person, but we will naturally grow and change over time. Yeah. And if we're with a partner who's like, nope, I'm good. I have <laughs> nothing else to learn, nowhere to go. I just know it all and I'm good. Yeah. That is going to be a really difficult relationship to sustain long-term. Yeah. I think especially too, in terms of with this population where people do go through these massive changes. I mean, I think for anybody, but right. I think too, when I've seen, you know, women who come like 
maybe they're six months or a year sober and their whole lives are, are changed and different and they have all this like energy and time and they're like, wow, I want to like do all these great things. And then sometimes there's this relationship where the partner maybe, yeah, like doesn't know how to deal with that, the new, this sort of new person who's in front of them. And I think they will, right. there can be a tendency for the partner to just dig their heels in and be like, no, this is like who I am. This is how we've always done it. Like what's who I guess it's just scary maybe to try to change or, or they're not sure how themselves. Um, but that yeah. willingness is, is so important. I think even just small steps too, for a partner just to agree to a tiny baby step of change, I think indicates like a good, that's a good sign, you know? I think you just said the word, it's willingness. Willingness is a part of so much in relationships. I don't know if I'm really interested in moving in that direction with you, I'm willing to talk about it or I'm willing to take a look at it. And maybe I'm not yet ready or willing for therapy. Maybe that feels really scary. And a lot of people will push back on going in for couples therapy or relationship therapy because they associate that with the end. Like if we go, mm-hmm. that's an admission that we're like at the edge of this and I, I can't even bring myself to think that way. So there's a lot of reasons why people might resist you know, that route. Um, But maybe there's a book you can read and maybe Mm. there's a meditation program that you'll download and practice some self-soothing for yourself. Maybe, you know, there's some things that we can do on our own that are part of healing and growth. And is there a willingness to inch in any of those directions? Yeah, I think that that's a really solid point. Those, those little tiny bits and yeah. I was, I was going to ask you too, other than, than books, like for couples that, you know, are on this trajectory and want to grow together, but maybe they are not at that point where they want to go to therapy for whatever reason. Are there other, um, yeah, are there like other things they can do together that mm-hmm. is sort of like almost a stepping stone to therapy or kind of along that path, but not quite into the, the therapist's office, whether it's like online consulting or... Um, anything yeah. like that that you'd recommend or suggest? Yeah. I mean, so one thing is that the Gottman Institute, which people can find online, offers um, workshops and, and uh, couples experiences across the U.S. and Canada. And I think there might even be some globally um, where uh, some folks can you know, sign up for a weekend and just learn a lot of skills and tools and things mm-hmm. like that, where it's not so much therapy, it's more like learning and knowledge-based. Um, sometimes that's not always available and sometimes that's not always affordable. Um, the seven principles for making marriage work, which is not just for married folks, but in relationships in general. Um, that's a John Gottman book and that's the top couples book that I recommend to folks. It's based on all that research and it goes over the different components of the sound relationship house. If you're not a reader, which a lot of people are not that interested, podcasts and Mm. uh, social media, YouTube videos, there's a lot of content. Yeah, there is today. And there's therapists that are posting different, you know, just tidbits tools, techniques. It's not therapy, but it's stuff that's really relatable. It's bite-sized. It's easy to consume and it gets people talking. And I get messages all the time on social media saying, you know, you posted this thing and then I went and talked to my partner about it and we had this really amazing conversation and it just gave us some, you know, talking points or some ideas. And then we took it from there. And so 
you know, adding some, you know, really good accounts to your social media, following podcasts. There's so much out there. And so you can make it really digestible. And while you're driving to work, while you're Mm -hmm. going for a walk, while you're doing the dishes, you could be listening to something that helps you kind of grow your knowledge base and expand your mind a bit. That's very smart. And I think those little tidbits are really, um, they're a nice way to introduce it into your relationship. I think instead of being like, we need to go to therapy to deal with this, be like, oh, hey, I heard this thing today about how you know, we can manage conflict in smaller doses versus mm-hmm. letting things build up. Um, mm-hmm. So that's nice. And it doesn't always have to, you don't even really have to tell your partner maybe what you're doing. Um, right. I mean, of course you can, but you so can sort of just co- slide it in there. Like I read this thing. What do you think about that? Exactly. By the way, yeah. I think we do that, but you know, mm-hmm. no hidden message. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, honestly slide it in, but yes, yes. it could just be less intimidating than I talked to a therapist. Um, Absolutely. It allows the lines well, of communication to stay open. And I think a lot of people don't realize, and I, I know I posted about this a while ago, but like some of the reasons why people may not be open to, because that's one of the, the toughest things I deal with, with folks that I see is I'll often have one person come in mm-hmm. and say, I've got relationship issues or sexual relationship issues, and my partner will not step foot in the store. And so we're trying to do sex and relationship therapy with one person, which is only giving you know the therapist half of the story, right. one person's perspective, and it's hard to work on a relationship by yourself. Yeah. You can influence a relationship by working on yourself. But, you know, it's always nice when we can have two people, but there's reasons why people uh, might be resistant to that or might be scared of that. And that can be a whole host of things like they've had really bad experiences in the past. Or as I stated previously, it could be that, you know, that feels like an admission that we're, you know, almost at the door and this is a bad sign. I don't want to admit that we're in this, you know, place. And so we attach sometimes these stories to um, some of those things. And just to clarify for anybody who might also think some of those things that it's better to go in sooner. Yes. Because it's like, you know, you don't wait for your arm to fall off before (laughs) you go to the hospital. If like you have a cut and you're bleeding, like go. So you know, kind of dealing with things as they're developing. And therapy is really just a tool to help support you in figuring things out. So the sooner the better. The Gottman's research, um, I think something along the lines of folks will wait up to six years past the point that they're really struggling with something or there's a, a significant problem, six years before they'll go for help. And so I think the reason why a lot of people think like, oh, it's got to be really bad to go to therapy is because people are doing that. They're waiting mm-hmm. till it's really bad to go to therapy. Don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> Just try Come it. Come in. Come hang out with us and let's do some stuff. You know, let's, let's do some, you know, work and build some tools when things feel like, well, this is not exactly where we want it to be, or we're just starting to find this, you know, challenging. Don't wait you know, until six years of resentment and contempt and criticism and negativity is built up because then, then there's truth to that. Then it's very hard to come back from that for some people. 
I feel like at that point, A, that sounds like a miserable way to spend those six years. Oh, I know. And then I you're know. just like digging yourselves out of a hole instead of like right. planting a garden. Um, right. It's like you've got to un, you know, get all the stuff off that has been building on for so long. Well, if you look at the uh, bank account you know, metaphor, mm-hmm. it's like how much do you have to overdraft before you start to try to put a little bit of money into the account? Like, Don't yeah. wait till you're $10,000 overdraft, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's a good analogy. So, yeah. I'm, cu- I'm curious if you're, are you familiar with the, um, like Imago therapy at all? You know, I read, uh, one of Harville Hendricks's books, mm-hmm. um, and that was several years ago, but I'm not as kept up with it. Yeah. I know a little bit about it, but not a lot. I was just, it just popped into my head. So I was curious. I'm not sure if they're as researched as the Gottman method. And so that might be why. I don't think so. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I don't know for sure, but I go think ahead. there's over, overlap between uh, mm. some of the methods. And then there's also overlap with that and Sue Johnson's method, which is, um, oh, now I'm going to forget the name of it. Emotion-focused couples therapy. Okay. Um, I believe emotion-focused couples therapy and Gottman Method are two of the top research-based and evidence-based practices. So if folks are looking for a couples therapist, I highly recommend somebody who maybe doesn't have to be certified but uses those tools, has read those tools, and practices in those ways because they're based on, you know, evidence-based and research means you're going to get a better likelihood of meeting your goals. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a big fan of research-based um, yes. therapies in general. I think it just, that's, you know, after you go to school for so long and you're in these researched and evidence-based professions, um, I think you see the value in it. Well, especially because you know that this is not just one person's like, I think this would be a good idea. Let's mm-hmm. all do that. And we don't even know how effective that is. So it's nice to know that something is, you know, effective. Yes. Or can be effective, I should say. Yeah, or has been effective for a big enough percentage that there's, you know, research to continue to try it. Um, And then there, you know, there's at least a, it sounds like a pretty high percentage of people that are having good results from that work. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So I'd love to dip a little bit into like some of these questions that I have and then um, just sort of kind of globally touch again on um, women who are like returning to dating after getting sober. Um, and so typically like people that are in 12 step programs or maybe just in general, like a a good rule of thumb people use is they don't, you know, date for like a year. Um, and so a lot of the women that I work with are further along in their sobriety. They've been sober for a while, but they're still having some trouble with like just entering the dating world. Um, uh-huh. for a variety of, of reasons, you know, I've heard some things kind of with sex and dating that are like, well, I just don't feel attractive or I'm really, I find I'm really self-conscious. Um, and I, I think there's a lot of comparison between like what it used to be like when I was drinking and like, you know, I don't really give a shit cause I'm drunk. So I feel like I'm the queen of the world. Um, I'm paraphrasing here, but <laughs> this, this is sort of the gist that I'm getting from, um, from the women that I've talked to about this. Mm-hmm. And so I'm wondering if, you know, if you've worked with this population at all, or even just from your, you know, your years of, of expertise, if you can speak a little bit to, you know, what are some good ways now that like alcohol isn't available as a buffer or substance isn't available as a buffer to sort of deal with some of that self-consciousness or how to, I guess, go into dating without it being such a huge, scary thing? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I want to validate 
also that dating is hard for everyone I talked to for the past, I don't know, 10 years or more. Um, It's just, it's, it's, I don't know that it was ever easy, but it's gotten increasingly more difficult and challenging as there's more and more, um, you know, apps and websites and this idea that there's, you know, just this limitless pool of people and well, you're cool, but somebody else might be better. So Mm. there's, it's just hard. And I want people to know that that's hard. It's, it's hard for most people. I was online dating for years before I met my husband and I met him from online dating. So, Mm. um, there was a lot of times where I had to take breaks and, you know, remove my profile and then add my profile and then remove it because it was so hard. Um, but also, the way of the world. So, um, you know, there are a couple pieces to it. One is that um, what often happens when we are drinking is that our inhibitions, all that like mental chatter that's like, oh, does this look kind of funny in this lighting? And what does this person think about me? And is this, do I like this? And what am I doing? And all of that stuff tends to sort of quiet down. The good news is that we can also practice doing that while sober. And the way to do that is to practice mindfulness, which it feels like all roads come back to mindfulness. Um, mindful sex is really different than <laughs> drunk sex. And it's really different from you know, what a lot of people are experiencing with their sexuality. And I am often working with folks to help them bring mindfulness into their sexual experience. And Um, A lot of that has to do with shifting from all of that mental chatter Mm. and being more in your body and noticing what feels good and just being present in the moment for it. Because if you're doing things with your body with someone else, but your mind is totally separated, it's really hard to then enjoy yourself, right? I mean, who wants to sign up for you're going to lie there and then the whole time you're just going to have this script in your head that's like, oh, this is no good and that's no good and oh, I don't know. You know, that doesn't sound very fun. So that's going to add to, I think, the you know, anxiety and the feelings mm-hmm. of self-consciousness. So um, there's been a lot of research, uh, particularly out of Canada, in uh, Lori Brado's work. Um, and she wrote a book for women called Better Sex Through Mindfulness. Hmm. And um, what she's finding is that women who have a general mindfulness practice, whether that's guided mindfulness or like yoga, meditation, are finding benefits in their sexual experience because they're able to sort of harness that present moment and kind of take some of that non-judgment approach and bring that into their sexual experience. So one way to kind of work through some stuff is if you don't already have a mindfulness practice is to, you know, kind of dabble with some mindfulness practice. And there's apps that you can download to your phone. There's programs online. There's in-person places that you can drop in that are often, you know, donation-based. And so that's, I think, one way to manage some of that because the mindful approach is really you know, when my mind starts going to a self-conscious place, I'm going to choose to redirect it back to something in my body. Mm-hmm. And often I will redirect back to touch sensations. What does this touch feel like in this moment? And what does it feel like with, you know, my skin touching this other person's skin and like trying to pay attention to 
those components of it, which will redirect you away from, you know, the mental chatter that's kind of taking away from the experience and bring you more into that embodied, pleasure-focused, connected experience. Yeah, I love that. I love that. I think sometimes instead of like, how can we get out of our busy minds? I like to direct people to like, instead, like, how can you like just engage with your senses, you know, and then, then that's not even a question anymore. Um, So that's a great, go ahead. Oh, uh, it's, it's this, it's the mindful way of like not judging those thoughts and not, Mm. not trying to necessarily change the thoughts or challenge the thoughts. It's yeah. just choosing to pay attention to something else and that something else is the senses. Mm-hmm. And with sex, you know, you have a lot that you can work with, with touch, with smell, with what you're looking at in front of you. And, um, you know, so if your mind wanders every two seconds, that's okay. And then bring it back, bring it back to whatever that focal point is that's in the room with you. Yeah, that's really good advice. Is that is that something that you would engage like with your partner with? Like I'm trying to think of what that would look like. I mean, yes. maybe not, maybe that's too much, but are there do you have no, any good No, there is. How there, does one do that? Yeah, there's um uh I took a a day-long workshop. Oh gosh, this might have been 2 years ago at this point, maybe longer. Um in sensate focus therapy. Hmm. Sensate is another way of saying sensation, and it's really just a mindfulness practice. It was first developed by Masters and Johnson. They were famous sex researchers in the U.S. in like the 50s and 60s. And I took a workshop with folks who um, studied with them back in the 80s. We're still using some of these methods today. Um, because they were bringing mindfulness into sexual health and sexual function. And so there is a way to bring that into a partnered experience. And I have um, a book that I'm working on about libido and sexual desire and uh, hoping to incorporate some sort of guided steps for how to integrate that in with a partner that are um, kind of user-friendly and and kind of makes sense to the reader. Um, Because the original works and everything that's been written is sort of, you know, like either written for clinicians or written in a way that's more vague. But essentially what it is, is, you know, uh, a basic way to dabble with this is to often couples will do this in their room, like on a bed, take turns, take a few minutes. And each of you take a turn being the toucher and the person who's being touched. And just touching to start like arms and legs, face and feet. And you don't, you know, don't include genitals, maybe don't include chest right away, but just focusing on the senses and doing this as like a mindful practice. So I'm going to touch your body for a few minutes and just try to focus on the touch, Hmm. the temperature, the pressure, the texture of the touch. And every time my mind wanders, I'm going to redirect back to that. And then after a few minutes, we'll switch and then, you know, take turns that way. And so that's a way to practice mindfulness with touch with a partner. Now, if you're going to do some of that, what I recommend is just to get a bit familiar with it, maybe detach it from sexual activity, just make it sort of its own mindful practice that you're engaging in together. 
I like that. And it, I feel like that takes some of the pressure off of too, of like, oh, we're here. I guess we're having sex now and let's do this. And I, I heard in some of the other podcasts that you were on kind of talking about this sex being this all or none thing for a lot of people. Yes. Yes. Um, and, and I really like, you know, what you had to say. And of course, I'd love to hear you speak on it now. Um, yeah. But I like that this practice is just very, it is, it's like a mindfulness thing instead of like a gearing up for sex, you know, which I think then comes with the whole bunch of other pressure potentially for people and, you know, allows like your head to go into a completely other space rather than just like, oh, this is this nice, you know, like touching practice we're doing. Right. Right. And, you know, um, I think people will go into a practice like this with a lot of either confusion of what we're doing Mm -hmm. or, um, you know, sort of preconceived ideas of like, oh, this is kind of a woo-woo practice, the touchy-feely stuff from the 60s and full on some truth to that. (laughs) And also evidence-based and really, really interesting. And what I will usually tell folks is I don't really know what it's going to do for you. Mm -hmm. I do know that I've seen it as like a really powerful tool and I use it in particular um, for a couple of things. And one of those is for uh, folks who have low desire for sex Mm. because a lot of sex feels like this all or none. It feels like, Oh, if we start touching and then it goes to this next part and then it goes to this next part. And if that next part or that, whatever that part goes to is something that I'm not that interested in or, causes me pain. There's a lot of women who have like pelvic pain, sexual Mm -hmm. pain. Then, you know, you start backing up the chain and it's like, I don't want any of it. And I don't want to give off any sign that I want to do all those things. So it becomes this really binary, like, you know, we're having penetrative sex and genital stimulation, or we're not doing any touching at all. Right. And so this exercise, because it's structured, it's like a standalone you're doing this and the rules are, mm-hmm. and I make, I make up the rules. Those are the sensate rules. It's not leading to sexual activity. So that really allows you to totally flip the script and detach all of the you know, norms that go with that. And it takes a lot of the pressure off. Yeah, it sounds like it. And it, it seems like it might be a nice way too for just like trust building or just building some kind of intimacy with the partner for people that, you know, maybe have been through sexual traumas yes. or even like post-infidelity to, you know, sort of reacquaint yourselves and start building that trust again with, with somebody else. Yes, it, it can be all of those things. Um, it can be triggering for some people. And mm. so that's why I really recommend you know, I'm both excited to kind of get it out into the public so that it's easy to follow. I'm also concerned about that sometimes because I think it's something that for some people, they can just sort of read some instructions and take it from there. For Mm -hmm. others, they might really benefit from some support and guidance. And so maybe working with a sex therapist, if you have a trauma history, or if you find certain touch has like this aversive response Mm -hmm. or is triggering or You've got a lot of like body image stuff. You know, if you can get in to see a therapist would be uh, maybe a really helpful tool for that. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And, and hopefully, you know, people who are reading or who are listening are able to kind of determine whether or not like they're at a place where a practice like this would be healthy for them or, you know, if they were able, if they start the practice and it doesn't feel healthy, they're able to say, hey, this doesn't feel good. And yeah. 
um, you know, and if not, then, then hopefully to seek out additional, additional help and therapy along those lines is needed because it is so yeah. helpful. It's so helpful just to have the support. Uh, I'm such a big proponent of all different kinds of therapy, um, but yeah. it's, it just helps. It's like somebody else is on your team and kind of helping guide you forward. And Well, and with sexuality stuff and relationship stuff, I mean, maybe all of it, mental mm-hmm. health as well in general, we are so not informed about, no. you know, what does it take to manage conflict and what's everybody else doing with their sex lives? And, you know, we yeah. don't have a lot of referencing for it. We didn't study it. And so, you know, again, when you go see a therapist, you're, you're paying somebody who has some of that awareness, who's read some of those books, who's worked with other people and collects all of that experience to help just kind of, you know, move alongside that process with you and give you some of those tools. And, you know, the, the touching exercises are really powerful and amazing. They can also be really challenging. And so having somebody say like, you know what, I want you to break that up into a smaller bite-sized piece because that feels mm. like too much right now. And let's figure out how to make this work best for you. Because, you know, most folks know when you read a book or you follow a manual or a script, it's not always going to fit everyone, yeah. you know, exactly where they need it to. Yeah, definitely not. So that's where you get some individualized, you know, kind of uh, treatment or help. Definitely. Um, are there any... How do I want to? I'm wondering if there are like any main commonalities that you find with um, being a sex therapist with issues that people are working with that might be helpful just to, you know, kind of briefly touch on because I know everything is individualized. But if, if there's anything I know, um, you know, libido can be a big one. And I, I guess with my population, I think I sort of geared more towards that like trauma centric or post trauma with sex or like coming back into having more of a, you know, a an awareness of full body sensations, just if there's any, I don't know, anything that you see frequently that you would be able to speak to? Yeah. I mean, I think for, uh, for women, the top two things that I tend to work with are libido, hands down, number one concern. And, um, you know, just not feeling in the mood, not having the spontaneous interest in sex. And then, you know, the other thing that I see a lot is mm-hmm. women who have pain with penetrative sex. Mm-hmm. And that affects so many more women than we would ever imagine. I think a statistic I've seen a few times now is that 20% of cisgender women will experience painful sex at some point in their lives, whether that's, you know, before having kids, whether it's after having kids whether it's just sort of on its own, postmenopausal, and um, a lot of folks are left without a place to turn to. And, and unfortunately, the medical system does a lot of harm in this area. And yeah. a lot of folks are told by medical providers mm-hmm. to just and, and this is horrible for people in recovery. Have a glass of wine and relax and yeah, imagine you're dealing with pain. The pain is real yep. and it needs attention. And then you're being told to do the thing that you're in recovery for. I mean, it's just maddening. 
It is. And there's so little attention. I have quite a few colleagues who are um, pelvic health therapists and pelvic mm-hmm. health physical therapists. And so they, they deal with this a lot too, where there just yes. isn't this awareness that like, oh, we have muscles down there. They don't magically go back to how they were before you had a baby. It's like any other muscle in the body. There can be strains. Right. There can be pain that is purely like a musculoskeletal pain. Yeah. Um, so I know, I know one girl went in and said she had, was having pain with sex and her doctor immediately referred her to um, a psychiatrist, which maybe that's part of it, but maybe not. Like maybe let's also look at what's happening with the pelvic floor. Oh, it's so, I def- so problematic. I get, <laughs> it is. I get on a soapbox anytime it comes up because I'm like, no, there's, there are people that can help you. There's a really, for folks who may not know where to turn or maybe don't have access to, um, you know, certain specialists, like I'm really fortunate to work with women um, in my clinic who are specialists in women's sexual health. Mm. And so I can send folks to them and they know what to do and they get really good treatment. And sometimes that involves pelvic physical therapy, which a lot of people don't know. There's physical therapy for your vagina and physical therapy for your, you know, um, other like pelvic floor areas. And, um, and that it can be amazingly helpful, but it can also be other things too. There's, yes. uh, you know, um, a neural component. There can be uh, like skin and tissue, kind of dermatological issues. So it's really helpful to know that there is, you know, there's other people going through that and there is treatment offered for that. Um, and any anyone who's kind of dismissive about that is not practicing within their realm of expertise and is not being a good, you know, provider. Um, there's a book called When Sex Hurts by Erwin uh, Goldstein that's a really good sort of primer for here's all the things that could be going on and at least gives you a bit of information about how to be an informed that's sort great. of consumer of the medical, you know, complex and to be able to kind of know what questions to ask and know which direction to go. Um, So I'd say, you know, libido and pain are two of the most common issues that I see amongst uh, women. And then for, um, for cisgender men, it's usually, um, you know, erectile dysfunction Mm -hmm. or problems getting erection. I don't really like the dysfunction term, even though it's pretty common. Um, And then, you know, sometimes some concerns about, um, early ejaculation or um, not ejaculating at all. And I see, I've actually seen a lot of men recently who have gone through um, prostate cancer and surgery and are struggling with kind of what their new normal looks like. Yeah. So there's a a whole bunch of stuff. Yeah. Um, Anything, and I know we're kind of wrapping up here, but for... Like for low libido, um, yeah. anything that you would recommend or any strategies for women who are dealing with that? Because that is another thing that I hear a lot within my community is like, I just don't feel like having sex. Um, yeah. I don't have the drive that I had before. First and foremost, to know how normal that is. Um, and eventually, hopefully, in the next year, there will be a book that I've co-authored about that subject. In the meantime, um, Emily Nagoski wrote Come As You Are, and it is one of the most excellent books ever. I think you know any uh, cisgender woman should read that book at some point. I just think it's so amazing. Um, 
So I think that's a really great resource. I'd say the other thing would be to kind of map out what are all the things that are contributing to where you are in space and time right now. And those things could be biological, like, okay, I take some medications and I have like back pain or what's going on with your physical body Mm -hmm. and write those down, all the things that are affecting your physical body. And then all the things that are affecting your mental health, write that down, anxiety, stress, um, you know, this body image stuff and write all that stuff down and then write down the stuff that's affecting your social being. My relationship, my work is really hectic. You know, if you have kids or whatever, and that gives you a map of here's all the things that are also affecting your Mm -hmm. sexual health. It's affecting your mental health and your sexual health. It's, it's all a part of what's going on in your context. And so, you know, when folks are looking for like a pill or a quick fix, let's keep in mind that there's all of these different factors that play a role. Some of them we can do a little bit of tweaking. Some things we have to learn how to work around. So I think just, you know, kind of creating that map, what are all mm-hmm. the different things that are going on for you? Because that'll give you some ideas of, okay, this I can't change, that I can't, oh, this one maybe I can do some things to kind of reorganize so that I have a little bit less of a barrier here. That sounds so, smart and very yeah. uh, makes it much more manageable instead of this like kind of unknown fear or what's wrong with me or why don't I have this sex drive, but to actually look at everything like, oh, these are, you know, my life is varied and has all of these contributing factors. Kind of empowering. And it's, it's our own personal lives. And I also want to just validate it's the life, the, the lifestyle that we've created Um, is just really not conducive to how we're designed. And so working 40 plus hours a week and having often two people working in the house and if you have kids, it's just so, so much. And so I want people to know that it's not just their own lives, but it's like it's a product of our culture and our society. Um, There's some uh, also some theories about... um, women not being meant for monogamy. And that's part of why a lot of women are experiencing low libido. Interesting. Uh, the, the idea is that their sexuality is actually being stifled in monogamous relationships. And so um, if they are more like polyamorous or non-monogamous, that there's this revival in libido. So I'm just reading a book about that now called Untrue by Wednesday Martin. Interesting. Have you read um, Chris Ryan's Sex at Dawn? I've started it. Yes. Yeah. I've started it too. (laughs) It's kind of a meaty book, but I know, I think he touches on some of those aspects of more, like in prehistoric cultures, there were people did have more than one partners. And um, yeah, yeah, so that's interesting that you, that you mentioned that. Well, it's interesting because we have this narrative that in general, like, oh, men have high libido and women have low libido. And that's sort of this social narrative that goes Mm -hmm. around. And so this other idea of like, oh, no, actually women have a pretty fine libido. We're just meant to have lots of partners Hmm. is just a really interesting direction now you know, that can take you in a couple of places. One is to just feel like, okay, I'm not alone and there's nothing wrong with me. Some folks are translating that into being in open relationships and others, you know, may just find ways to create some newness and Mm. um, connection and novelty and adventure in their existing relationships. So does not mean we all have to go open our relationship 
You can do that though. That's okay. As long as everybody's, you know, on board or you can create some, you know, fun and excitement in your existing relationship by just going and doing new things together, trying new things together, break outside of your routine. And sometimes that just revives an energy that feels, uh, you know, new again. Yeah. I could definitely see that. Yeah. Well, um, thank you so much, Dr. Lauren, for coming on today. I feel like that's a good place for us to wind down. Um, and so I know that you are, as you mentioned, you've got a book coming out sometime in the, the nearish future. Um, Hopefully, yeah. <laughs> I'm excited. I'm, that's wonderful. It's so exciting. And then um, you're active on social media. I know you're on Instagram and Facebook, any other place. And of course, I'll put all the links in the show notes, but are there any other places where people can come and find you where, or where you'd like to refer people that, that are listening that want to hear more from you? Yeah, I think the best way to um, follow along with my work is on social media through Instagram and Facebook, and it's at Dr. Lauren Fogel Mercy. Um, I currently don't have a website because I work in a managed care organization, and yeah. so I'm like not, need one. not needing one right now. So the best way to reach me is through socials. That's great. Um, well, thank you again so much for coming on. I definitely learned a lot, and it was a real pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much.